just a moment. I want to begin tonight with a commercial, though, uh, of sorts. We've got an event going on at, on campus down at Heritage Christian on Thursday and Friday of this week. It's called Alumni Days, and um, I'm thankful that the weather's good this weekend because last year, that event, which is always the first Thursday and Friday of March, you may remember that's when we had an ice storm, and so our event pretty much got destroyed. We had one day of it, and so anyway... The reason I'm promoting that to you, it's an event where we invite our alumni back, those who are in ministry, we try to encourage them, we try to build them up, Uh, but our own Sheila Hamlin will be speaking, presenting in one of the ladies' sessions next Thursday at 1 o'clock, and she'll be talking about what I've learned about God in the mission field, and that covers 19 years worth of work. And so uh, I want to invite you to come down and support her in that, ladies, if you want to be there. Um, For the men, if you want to accompany your wives down during that time, Dr. Ted Burleson will be talking from a preacher's perspective about preaching difficult texts. You know, sometimes we hear lessons and we know they're on difficult subjects. Well, there's an entire side of that from the preacher's side that you might find interesting. And so just wanted to invite you down uh, to support Sheila in that effort on Thursday. As we begin tonight, I want to take you back 24 years. I want to take you back to March 28, 1992. It's the NCAA East Regional. A trip to the Final Four is on the line, and the game is Kentucky versus Duke. And I thought about giving you the video clip on the screen tonight, but it's just too painful. And if you watch any basketball at all, you're going to see this clip at least ten times over the course of the tournament. So I'm not going to show it because it's painful to me. But the scenario is this. Kentucky has just banked in this crazy shot to take a one-point lead. 2.1 seconds left to go in the game. Duke calls timeout. And in college, if you take it out, if you call a timeout after a made basket, you're taking it out under your own goal. And so 2.1 seconds to go the length of the court. And and Coach K, he gets his guys in a circle, and he doesn't just start drawing up a play for his best player. The first thing he did is he went around to each guy, put his hands on shoulders, and said, listen, we're going to win this game. We're going to win this game. We're going to win this game. And then he started asking questions. He asked two very important questions. He first asked, who can make the throw? And throw is actually a better term than pass because when you're taking a basketball and you've got to move it 75 feet down the court, it's not really a pass, it's a throw. And so he said, who can make the throw? Well, Grant Hill said, I can make the throw. Then he asked the question, okay, who can make the shot? Christian Leitner, the dreaded Christian Leitner, said, well, if Grant can make the throw, I can make the shot. And the rest is history. Grant Hill throws this perfect throw all the way 75 feet down a 94-foot court. Nobody deflects it. Nobody blocks it. Nobody gets in front of anybody. Leitner catches it, dribbles once, spins, shoots, makes the shot, and the game ends. But that's not really all, because when they started talking to Coach K after the fact, he was not shocked, he was not surprised by what his team accomplished in that moment. In fact, this is what he went on to say about that. He's this huge believer in preparation. So he said, preparation with a driving belief that you're going to win against all odds makes you almost unstoppable. And that's how it played out. And so so what out of that... As much as it pains me to relive that every year, 
I'm not sure if there's a better outside the Bible illustration of living with a triumphant mindset. Because that's exactly what he modeled for his team and that's exactly what they ended up playing through. And so it's important for sports, but it's really, really important for us spiritually. And we're going to live lives that matter to live triumphantly, to live with a mindset of triumph. And so when we start thinking about Psalm 136, because we are the children of God, and and God is described in that first verse, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. God is described as good. We ought to live with victory always in view. And so we've got to embrace this idea as we start tonight that it's a lot like what we talked about this morning. The the idea of a triumphant living, that being our mindset. We talked about lower story versus upper story. We've got to have, if we're going to live triumphantly, we've got to have this focus on upper story living. And so Psalm 136, it is a praise, a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, but it's also... In that, you see a mindset of victory. You see a mindset of triumph. A mindset fueled by who God is, what God has done, and what God continues to do. Now, a little bit of background info on this psalm. According to the scholars, we're not clear, we're unclear regarding the author. We're a little bit unclear regarding the date. Some scholars hold that this psalm was likely penned during the exile, and that provides some insight into why a triumphant mindset might be really, really important. We've talked about the exile through studying the story. If you're in exile, you've got to be thinking about a better day, a better day that may arrive later on. And the thought process would be, well, these acts done by God in the past, those are surely, hopefully, going to continue. And this psalm was likely one of those that was designed such that it would be chanted responsively. Because if you've noticed, there's, it looks like a long psalm, but it's really not because it's structured this way. Give thanks to the Lord for He's good. And then the response, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His kindness, His loving kindness is everlasting. It's that same response all the way through the psalm. As a byway of the response, the psalmist is affirming that every aspect uh, and God, every moment of God in the story of Israel, you see them being totally dependent on His steadfast love. Some of the translations of that response, for His loving kindness is everlasting, that's the New American Standard. There are uh, some other translations, because His commitment is forever. His love continues forever. Uh, For His mercy endures forever. The response, it's active. The response, it's ongoing. It's not a thing of the past. It's a thing of right now. And if it is indeed penned during the exile, it's this huge statement of faith. And so right off the top, the psalmist reminds us that God is good. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. 
God is good all the time. And, and sometimes we sing, God is so good. And uh, we've probably talked about this, but if you vacation in Gulf Shores and you go to worship in Gulf Shores and you worship down there, you're probably going to hear Ray Reynolds say, God is good. And then the church is going to respond by saying all the time. And after they do that a couple times, then Ray's going to say all the time and the church is going to respond that God is good. This psalm is affirming that. Our little children, the very first prayer that many children are often taught in wrote is, God is great, God is good. Exactly. And so we sometimes throw around the term good. Good time, good movie, good meal, good weekend. But when we start talking about God, and we start talking about the idea that God is good, that term there refers to moral perfection. God is holy. God is perfect. God is never wrong. And so, I'm going to read tonight from this psalm, and I'm not going to chant the response every time. I'm going to give you the the first part of each verse, but the first three would go this way. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. When you think about God, He alone has done great wonders. In the beginning, God. That's the very beginning of Scripture for us. And so, when you get to verse 4 of this psalm, to Him alone who does great wonders. He is God of gods. He is Lord of lords. And remember, you're dealing with people possibly in exile, people who are being exposed to many false gods. And so the psalmist begins by setting the God of heaven above anything else that could be compared to. And then he takes us through the creation story. He's powerful. He's intricate in creating. To him alone who has done great wonders. We'll we'll drive by a house. We'll drive by a structure. And we will admire the architecture. We'll, we'll, we'll see a piece of furniture or a piece of equipment. And we'll admire the, uh, the craftsmanship that went into producing that. And... See, a view of creation, a view of what God has done, that should always result in praise for the Creator and then a realization of what that means for us as children. Notice what he does in taking us through these verses. Verse 4, to Him alone who does great wonders. Verse 5, to Him who made the heavens with skill. Verse 6, to Him who spread out the earth above the waters. Verse 7, to Him who made the great lights. Verse 8, the sun to rule by day. Verse the moon and stars to rule by night. Not to be disrespectful in any way to the God of heaven. But it's this idea that that when we look around at creation and when we look around at what God has done, we look around and we can say, well, that's my dad in a sense. My father owns that. I call the creator of all father. I live triumphantly because he's the one taking care of me, the one who owns it all, the one who made it all, the one who created it all. He's my father. See, there are two kinds of wealth. There are... Those who go out and earn, that's what we might call new money. And then there are those that we might call old money. Those are folks who are born into a privileged existence. Our story spiritually, it's rags to riches. Born into poverty, but living a life of spiritual wealth. Destitute, but adopted. 
And so it's it's a long paragraph, but I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and... You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago how sometimes we have trouble getting through a long reading. But I want you to notice something. Because in Ephesians 1, there is this discussion about how blessed we are. And the key phrase, the key phrases here, and it'll be repeated several times in these few verses. But notice how Paul, as he writes, he's talking about what goes on for the person who's in Christ. What's going on for the person who is in Him? I'm going to begin in verse 3 and I'm going to go through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved or in Jesus. Then he says, in Him, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. That's a great word. If you've ever lavished gifts on someone, you're trying to get their attention and you know maybe it's the young lady who's lavished with flowers by the guy who's trying to get her attention. The, the wording there is, God has lavished these blessings on us. Those of us who are in Christ, in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory." Verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with Him, uh, in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. To Him who alone has done great wonders. See, that, that's what we have. Our Father who's done these great wonders, that's what He's provided for us. Why do we live triumphantly? Well, we live triumphantly not because of us, but because of what's been done for us. What we find in Christ. The second thing I want us to think about briefly, though, uh, that we have a triumphant mindset because God has been mighty in delivering His people. And, and again, go to the text in in Psalm 136 and notice again the first part of each verse. Notice what happens beginning in verse 10. And this is Israel's history. To him who smote the Egyptians and their firstborn and brought Israel out from their midst with a strong hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who smote great kings and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, even a heritage to Israel, his servant. Mighty in delivering his people. 
Now, related to creation, we would be in the same boat as those who would have originally been encouraged by this psalm. God created. We know it because we see evidence of it. We live in it. We walk among it. Yet neither we nor original readers of this psalm were there to see it as it happened. Yet these powerful stories of deliverance were the history of that nation. Now, a lot of the people, if they're in exile, they didn't live through all of these things, but these things that are talked about here in the psalm, they're a lot closer to them in days of history than they are for us down the road now. But as we think about God's people being impacted by God's powerful deliverance, possibly the most amazing are the people who are actually delivered. Those who were experiencing God's power firsthand, this, this history lesson, the people who were alive and experiencing those things as they happening. It seems like those deceased ancestors who were physically delivered, it seems like that they should have had the easiest time living faithfully, living triumphantly as they experienced God doing all of those great things. And yet, we've studied it through the story and, and you know how it works. Even while they were being delivered, they didn't always choose to live triumphantly. Barely out of Egypt. And they're already complaining in the wilderness. They're not even to the Red Sea. They haven't even had the sea part in front of them yet. They've had all those plagues occur. Pharaoh finally says enough's enough. They're not to the Red Sea yet. And in Exodus chapter 14 beginning in verse 10 you get this. As Pharaoh drew near... The sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I mean, they haven't even crossed the Red Sea yet. And they're complaining. For us in 2016, it's a major failing on our part if we choose not to take advantage of what God wants us to understand about the shortcomings of His people in the Old Testament. And that's why when you get over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we get this lesson about what's going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm not going to read all of this. I know I've been reading quite a bit tonight, but notice the first five verses there in 1 Corinthians 10. Notice what's recorded. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. In other words, God is taking care of all of them in one sense they're following Christ. But then verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. And then verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. If I live the way they lived, complaining about what God hasn't done, or uh, if you read some of those verses in chapter 10 that we didn't read, you read things like craving evil, idolatry, acting immorally, trying the Lord, grumbling. If I'm living that way, I'm not living triumphantly and I'm missing the lesson that God wants me to learn from these people. 
in one sense, if I'm giving in to the temptations that Israel did, it might be that I'm not fully convinced that God's way is best. Or that God's promises are real. And when I'm struggling, I shouldn't be shocked. I just need to refocus. I need to think about triumph. I need to get victory back in the front of my windshield. And yet, there is a value in looking back. Because looking back, that ought to provide the the ability for us to stay focused on victory. To live triumphantly. Because here's the thing. When I look back at what happened and what God provided and what God did and how people failed when they didn't stay focused on Him, thinking about those things should provide some confidence for the victory that I'll achieve as I face everything that lies in front of me. Because God still provides for His people today. God is still more mighty than any struggle that I face and any struggle that you face. God will not allow me to be defeated if I look for the way out. And that's why after all of that in chapter 10 about their failings, we love verse 13 because verse 13 is the verse of encouragement. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. That's the living triumphantly verse. That verse helps us understand how to live with the triumphant mindset. In sports, some teams grow to the point where they fully expect to win. But there are teams that are young and they really haven't learned how to win yet. And when they're trying to learn how to win, sometimes there's this... It's going good, but we expect things to go bad at any moment. And when you're there that bad thought process often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so for us, when a spiritual challenge or a spiritual temptation arises, the triumphant mindset, it will help me avoid defeatism, no negative talk, no assuming the worst. It will help me assume that I will find the way of escape rather than assuming that I'll fall to the temptation. It'll help me know that somehow, someway... I'll come out the other side of whatever I'm going through stronger than when I went in. Why? Because of a powerful God who promises that He'll always provide a way. He's powerful, mighty in delivering His people. I count on Him because I know what He's done in the past. Finally tonight, number three, we live triumphantly because we know He's mindful of our need for rescue. And that might be the most powerful thing in this this psalm that we think about for the entire evening. Notice verse 23, 24, 25, and 26. Who remembered us in our lowest state and has rescued us from who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Loving kindness is everlasting. Now, again, if this is written for people who are in exile, the mindset that God rescued us before, so surely He'll rescue us eventually now, that would have been critical for a triumphant mindset. And thankfully for us, we we know the full story. We get to look back at it all. We see how it all played out. We know that God did indeed rescue His people. 
But even more importantly, because of having the entire revealed will of God, we know that that rescue has also been carried out for us. The rescue that, that, that is found in Christ, what we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, God being so powerful yet so benevolent, aware of my needs, aware of your needs. Again, who remembered us in our lowest state. Can we say too much about God's grace and His mercy? Because I had sin and I had separation. I was in exile from a spiritual standpoint. I'm sequestered away. I'm without hope. I've got a death sentence hanging over me, but, but not now. And day to day, when life seems to crumble around me, I know that He still remembers me. He knows what I need. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, second part of verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before. You ask Him. All made possible through the investment of a son. So, so every action on his part is ultimately about a rescue. We talk about the, the message of the Bible being Jesus, the message of the story being Jesus. Another way to say it, the message of the Bible is, is God performing and making possible this great rescue. And Paul was convinced about that. Romans chapter 8, these verses are familiar, but I, I love what he says beginning in verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him. See, back to that in Him, through Him, in Christ, through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if we're going to think about living a life that matters, and that's what we're thinking about through these Sunday night lessons, the idea of living triumphantly. That'll allow us to live a life that matters. And so the spiritual inventory question becomes, are we living triumphantly today? As I think about my life, where can I look at my life and realize that, that God has provided a victory in my life? Because James 1.17 reminds us that all good and perfect gifts come down from Him. When there's a blessing in my life, it is from God. And so I think about other victories that God has brought to me, beyond salvation, the ultimate victory, but the victory over a heartache, the victory over a financial challenge, the victory over grief, the victory over an addiction, the victory over abuse, the victory over anger, the, the, the victory over immorality, the, the list can go on and on, but it's God who provides those victories. You see, God is still a deliverer today. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We began tonight talking about Duke's amazing victory in the spring of 1992. And it's significant that, that, that when you read about that and you hear the interviews, you kind of get the idea that the coach may have believed more in his guys than some of those guys actually believed in themselves. But isn't our relationship with God a lot like that? 
where God will be believing in us even when we may not be believing in ourselves. There's several victory passages we could leave on. I, I think of 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 4, where the Bible says, For who, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Just over two weeks ago, I visited with a lady who understood what triumphant living looks like. I was down in Dallas a couple of weeks ago, and on Thursday afternoon I went by the nursing home there in Louisville and I visited with Evelyn Shannon. Miss Evelyn was 106 years old when I went in to see her. You know, you don't get to visit with too many people that have moved past 100. And there she is. She's 106 years old. She'd been a donor, uh, worked with us at Heritage Christian for years. Uh, didn't just help herself. She connected us with this other great friend of hers, a lady named Betty. And through the connection that Evelyn made through Betty, this, this other friend of hers who is a spry 80-some-year-old, she's given us well over $100,000 to train preachers. So she's done all these great things. She never had any children. She'd retired from corporate life and then went to work in, in her congregation as the church secretary. But the other thing she was doing through her life is she was involved in various mission efforts. She was training preachers with us and she loved world Christian broadcasting and I think there were some other things that she was involved in. But she wanted to see the lost come to Christ. And I can remember going in to see her on occasion and uh, she would be near a hundred and even past a hundred and I'd go in and I'd say hi to Miss Evelyn and she couldn't hardly hear me. But this was always her statement to me. She would say, I'm still working. In other words, she'd have all these reports and these things around her where the, the works that she's involved in from a mission standpoint, she's still supporting them and she's looking at what's going on and she's still praying with them. She's confined to a wheelchair but she says, I'm still working. I was also told that sometimes as she got past a hundred, people would come to see her and she would ask the question, why am I still here? You know, after all the years, why is God still keeping me here? And one of the things that she worked on late in her life came to fruition. A number of years ago, she invested in a, a farming operation that was associated with a school preaching out the country and this was to plant these trees that would eventually yield a harvest whereas these trees would produce a harvest these preaching students could harvest from these trees sell that produce and and use the money from that investment to to help them live as they ministered and God let her stay around long enough to see that first and I think that second harvest still working well, two weeks ago when I went to see her, something was very different about Miss Evelyn. She was in bed. And she said, I'm in pain right now. They've tried. They cannot make the pain stop. And she said, you know, you've heard that saying that you've got to get better in order to feel good enough to die. And she said, I think that's where I am. And you could just tell. And she said, tell Dennis, talking about our president, tell Dennis I still love him. And I'm really glad I went because a week ago Saturday was her memorial service. She lived and died with victory in view. She illustrates what it means to live triumphantly. 
And I'm so thankful to have known Miss Evelyn Shannon. The question for us tonight is, you know, have you allowed God to position you for victory? If we're Christians, we can answer that in affirmative. And so then the next question is, if He's positioned me for victory, am I keeping that in the, in the windshield? Am I, am I thinking about victory every day? That's how I live triumphantly. That's how God wants us to do it. And if for some reason things are going on in your life where it's kind of hard to see that victory right now, what needs to change? If you're not a Christian tonight, you need to obey the gospel. That's, that's how you get victory into the windshield. But for those of us who are Christians, if there's something that's blocking that view right now, if we can pray together about that, if we can help you find that victory again as family, that's what we're here for. So as Bradley leads us in the song he selected, if you have a need, let that be known while we stand and while we sing. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas great. Tom, my heart to fear and grace my fears relieve. How precious did that grace appear? The say those last two verses for our closing song. Uh, we do thank you for joining us tonight. If you aren't able to take the Lord's Supper this morning, it's prepared in a classroom to the left of the auditorium. Uh, again, we thank you for joining us. We invite you back tonight at 7... Tonight? No, not tonight at 7 o'clock. Wednesday night at 7 o'clock for our Bible study. And we encourage you... We've got a lot of great studies going on. Uh, if you have a neighbor that you think would benefit from that... We know your neighbors could benefit from that. Invite someone to church to come with you on Wednesday night. Again, we thank you for being here. Let's close with verses 4 and 6, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and
ocean be as long as life endures when we've been there Shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun.